After working in the Fire and Rescue Service, John Durkin placed the real-world challenges of incident stress, colleague suicides, and post-traumatic stress disorder under academic scrutiny to design an evidence-based program of crisis intervention for the emergency services. John assisted the post-9-11 peer response with New York police officers and led the Metropolitan Police Service's crisis response to the 2017 London terror attacks and Grenfell Tower fire. He has become a leader of a movement that places experience above qualifications and skill above expertise, a bottom-up approach to mental health and well-being. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Well, I'm delighted today to have with me as a, as a guest on the podcast, uh, John Durkin. Got that name correct? You did. Good morning. <laughs> What's your middle name? Do you have a middle name? I do. It's Edward. John Edward Durkin. No, Jed. That's, that's I'll stop that. That's the reason I wasn't going to tell <laughs> you. <the> re- <laughs> I won't call you Jed. I'll call you John. Thank you. And we're sat here in your rather massively wide open space living room of your apartment where you live in Hampstead. I do. Hasten to add, you, you, you live here as a guardian, I, do. I believe, of um, a huge property, formerly an orphanage, set right so in the middle told, of Hampstead. Yes. Yeah. So you're not, people gather from your Bromley accents, you're, you're not a Londoner by birth. Were you born and brought up in, in the West Midlands? Yes, yeah? yes I was. Where, whereabouts were you? All over Birmingham. My dad managed pubs, so we moved on a fairly regular basis. And then later when I joined the fire brigade, I was stationed at different places. So pretty much all over Birmingham and the black countries what I'd refer to as home. Hmm. No fixed abode, but lots of little places around there. Lovely. It's a lovely part of the world. And so now you live in London, and the reason you're on the podcast today is because of your involvement with the, we, I nearly said the fire brigade earlier, and off, off mic we had a conversation about the meaning of the word fire brigade, as a bit regimented. And well, it's fine with me. It's fine with you, John, but contemporary firemen or the powers that be would prefer to have it called the fire and rescue service I they think. would and, it, and i wouldn't be a fireman either i'd be a firefighter a firefighter that's very true but to me you're fireman from the fire from the fire brigade that will tumble out <laughs> even uh, if i try stopping it so don't worry yeah. so i'm probably giving my age away a little bit here or well, both our ages we but are. um so you moved down to london but the the interesting thing for me and the and and the listeners today is is your incredible involvement with a number of high profile tragic events in recent times and the work you've been doing as a result of that I guess in the post-traumatic stress disorder recovery element. So let's just just go back a step and talk us through a little bit about your history with the uh, fire and rescue service of the West Midlands. When did you first start joining the fire, fire service? I joined when I was 19. I had ambitions to be a doctor, which were incredibly naive because my domestic circumstances were never going to allow me to do that. But I was at the top grammar school in in Birmingham, so I felt I got sufficient grey matter holding my ears apart. And back in the 70s, jobs were dropping off trees. So being the oldest lad, my dad not being in great health and a change in business meant that what I could see of the family not doing too well and me 18 19 years of age was to look for a job i remember back then you could start a job in the morning and if you didn't like it you could walk around the corner at lunchtime and start another one somewhere else in those the were the days eh? you remember them? <laughs> yes yeah. i do so that was uh, it was pretty much like that the same day that i was uh, i got my invitation to start training as a as a fireman back then um i was offered a bank manager's trainee bank manager's job 
And I then had the decision to make, is it going to be a briefcase and a pinstripe suit or a big red lorry and a play suit? And of course, even though the money was a lot less, I'd much preferred to be, uh, to be, a uh, to join the fire brigade than do the nine to five office stuff. And of course, once I'd started, I absolutely loved it. And that was, that was the big attraction. I was doing something to help the family out. I was enjoying what I was doing and I was facing challenges that many, probably most people would find impossible at least by imagination and i was coping i was i was enjoying the challenge that's an interesting point that you were facing challenges obviously we're going to talk about some of the the, the challenges as we progress with 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 our chat when you joined the fire brigade i'm going to call it the fire service back then when you were a young young man were you made aware of some of the challenges you were likely to face going into the service well, probably more than most. My uncle had been a, a sub-officer ah, some years before. He okay. was killed when a factory collapsed on him. Oh, wow. What, in service? Yeah, while he was yeah. A, oh, so I was 14 when that happened. Okay. And strange as it might sound to some, that why would you want to go and do a job as dangerous as that? It was probably the respect that was paid him in his death, after his death, that made me think, I wouldn't mind people talking about me like that. And so in my mind, as a teenager anticipating what I might or might not do. Uh, while I did have ambitions to go to university, become a doctor, the realistic options were disappearing. And that was when I realised I'm big enough to help the family out here, get yourself a job and worry about going to university later. Um, so yeah, my uncle Derek was killed as a, as, a, as a sub-officer, which was the rank I reached when I was injured. But that's for later. Right, okay. Well, I didn't know that, so I'm sorry, sorry to hear that. It's okay. Because in those days, I mean, firefighters were highly respected, I think, in the community. Has that sort of dropped off now? Because often you hear times firefighters attending, you know, scenes of incidents and things where they're being attacked by mobs and news and things. Why is that lack of respect? Well, I think there's two sources that have eroded the respect of firefighters. One is what most people would regard as the kind of erosion of respect and or in respect and authority in any case. Mm. But the one that bothers me the most is what I might call political disrespect. When I joined, I did 12 weeks on the training school. I did six weeks on a station. Then I had nine weeks on a picket line because the first firefighter strike occurred. And that was when I started to realise how highly valued firefighters were in public, but how poorly valued they were by the politicians that paid the wages and the assumptions that were made about what they would do for such little money, so poorly equipped... And I think what the outcome of the strike really did was professionalise the, the fire service in a way that I really hadn't expected. And that was when I got the view that the people that were pushing for this strike, that were pushing for the conditions to change, were fully justified. Because when we did get re-equipped and we did get better training and we did take a more responsible view of how the job should run, then that was when I started to feel like it, it wasn't just the play suit job that I'd kind of sniggered at when I turned down the bank manager's job it was a service worth belonging to they made a big play about how the promotion system was going to become more talent-led rather than who knew who um so i felt really quite comfortable for a number of years after that first strike and i think what's eroded it was the antagonism that occurred in the previous in in more recent disputes there where we've seen a much more fragmented brigade by brigade approach to it politicians have pretty much said you're sacked, re-sign on new conditions. So that's, that's the one that probably, in my mind, creates an even bigger threat 
to the respect that firefighters were once held in. It's like, well, even the politicians don't trust them. They'd been treated in this way. Why do we treat them any better than we should? Yeah, but and people don't trust politicians. So if politicians don't trust fire, firemen, why should we follow their views? But in, when a politician that's actually in charge of your uh, of overseas fire and rescue is doing what a lot of the tabloid journalists were doing to provoke us back in 1977-78, was remind us how many frames of snooker we'll play, how much time we have, you know, spending cooking for ourselves and we've got all this laid on and then comparing us with people who've got poorer conditions and assuming that we're somehow some kind of rabble that just hide behind a uniform and just turn up and do a dirty job. So there isn't much, apart from the, the actual incidents that we get involved in, there isn't much to actually create a public perception that we are worthy of, of any respect. Mm. That's a fair point. There used to be a very good um, drama series on, I can't remember. London's Burning. London's Burning, that's the one. It used to trigger me after I was injured. This is one of the reasons I realised how fragile we can be. Uh, I was injured uh, after 12 years in the job, fell out of an attic in a shop on fire, cracked a vertebrae, determined to get back to work. And oddly, I think most firefighters and police officers, even soldiers would get this. When you've survived something that could have taken your life, You've kind of earned your stripes, and in most people's eyes, you're going to go up a notch. Well, I returned to work bigger, better, and stronger, but found myself worried to death about a job I used to be confident in. So I struggled for about six years in what was a fairly hostile environment, given what some saw back then as a fairly paramilitary style of management. So a para- paramilitary style of management, plus I'm guessing a fairly sort of macho view amongst the the frontline staff as well yeah you know you yeah. got to be tough and man you put, up and yeah. all. you put them together and find that you don't have the confidence to be macho anymore you can actually feel like a victim to both parties the people that used to support you because they had faith in you and those that would keep kind of leaning on you threatening you just because that's their way of deciding whether you match up any longer and when you've as i had premonitions of your life ending tonight just because the voice was in your head telling you that's going to be it, to go on duty with tears in my eyes and a lump in my throat I could hardly swallow because I hadn't said farewell to my parents, to my loved ones, and then to get through the night shift amazed that it didn't happen. It's going to be tonight. I must have got the date wrong. Like the, the doomsayers that the, the, world, the end of the world is nigh, I was just, I got the date wrong. So that was, a, that was the point at which I was beginning to realise just how suddenly you can go from something made of leather to something made of wet tissue paper. Mm. So for someone who had suffered injury uh, during the course of their, their work, you know, falling through a, a, an attic, I think yep. you said, you couldn't get support from your, your peers because it's man up, presumably, you know, that's the nature of the job. Well, do you know what? And it's a, it's a really good point. And when we get on to talk about yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder, I'll introduce this as the seeds to the way I now think about it. I was off for six months. And in the course of that six months, I was being visited by the old watch anytime they went past. I was being looked after at me, mum and dad. So anytime the truck went past the front front door they'd sound the horn so I knew I was being thought of uh, when I was well enough to walk I was up to the bar and the station and mixing with them again and looking forward to getting back and for some reason that I will never appreciate senior managers decided it was time to move me on I had a compulsory transfer so when I got fit I went back to a different watch so I didn't any longer have that net to catch me if I slipped and of course I'm expecting to slip because I'm going to be fairly precarious of course. about what I do 
So and did they support you at all, the senior no, management? They, they, no. they didn't offer any support? I actually would say, whether unwittingly or not, they undermined any support. So they took you out of your comfort zone of the people you've been working with by moving you to a different watch? Yeah. And they didn't support you? So no. you had no support, sort of lateral support, and you had no, no support from the top no. down? No. So you had nothing? No. And my complaints about why is this happened to me, because my confidence had completely evaporated, I knew, and I didn't blame them. The guys I'd gone to work with, they're expecting somebody to turn up as rough and tough as anybody else that, that, that's newly appointed to the watch. And I couldn't be rough and tough because I didn't even know whether my back was going to hold up the next time I lift a ladder or do something quick and strenuous. So I you're already feeling know. somewhat fragile about turning up on the next the next job. You know, is the ceiling going to hold? Am I yeah. going to fall off the ladder or whatever? Am I going to, you know, is there going to be a, what do you call it, when the fire flames flash over? Flash or over or draft, or is yeah. it something crappy going to happen to me so you've got that fragility going on in the back of your mind and you've also got the insecurity of your your job as well without the support from your your senior management who should be looking yeah. after your interests so in 30 40 seconds you've summarized everything that seemed to have been completely missed by an entire raft of managers at that time back in the uh, back in the fire service and this comes as no surprise to any firefighter retired or otherwise when I explain it to them they've nearly all got a story like that to tell and yet it seems so obvious sitting here but deliberately avoided by senior management or lack of knowledge at that time well I go so far as to say it was deliberate because it was during that same time period that one of my colleagues that uh, was being held responsible for a fire that wasn't quite extinguished when the assistant chief had decided it was we do when the job is complete we send what's called a stop message and that's a formal radio message back to control to say the fire's been dealt with it's not going to get any worse you can return all the resources back to their original stations because of the big fire they're all being crept creeping closer in case many more are needed and the um this car showroom in birmingham was um well alight six pumps so you could pretty much multiply that by five and say 30 firefighters that's a decent fire when it was down to two pumps for what we call damping down and the assistant chief has left having sent a stop message, uh, one of the firefighters heard rumbling in a, a ceiling and poked it with the, something called a ceiling hook, a big long stick with a point, and that introduced the oxygen into a seal compartment that had all the flammable gases. It flashed over and it brought down the whole floor the whole building and the guys I knew that were at the job were all amazed that they all got out. They did the roll call. Nobody was left behind. The mezzanine floor had collapsed. The cars had all rolled out through the glass. And now it was Frenchy's job to make pumps eight to get 40 firefighters there. Frenchy, Frenchy was the sub-officer in right, charge of okay. the, uh, the damping down bit. So it wasn't anything anybody expected to escalate, but it did. So long story short, a couple of years later, he's pretty much been held responsible not the fellow that sent the stop message, the senior officer, the principal officer, but Frenchy. Now, how much of this is absolutely true, I can't know, but that was certainly the belief amongst the firefighters, and I worked on the watch that was actually there. So they knew the story extremely well. And on one or two occasions, I found that Frenchy was being pretty much interrogated, and any time I got notified that he was due for another, what we called a kick-in, I'd phone him in advance so they didn't actually surprise him. But that was the way they would. They were setting about. It seemed they were trying to persuade him to accept responsibility for some reason. And after several months, I got a call. After I was recovering, actually, I was getting ready to. I was 
recovering from my back injury. And I got a call from a mate that said, have you heard about Frenchy? And I didn't. He said he gassed himself yesterday, found in his car. So I'm hinting here at something that's often missing from the, let's call it the discourse or the narrative on post-traumatic stress disorder. I have a sense that betrayal is the thing that can really erode our resources to handle handle anything. I think as firefighters, we could pretty much handle anything if we've got people back in us. I think just about every soldier I know that served in the military would say the same. As long as you've got your back in, you can do extraordinary things. But once it's gone, and particularly if nobody told you it was going to go, you find yourself isolated from the tribe and then the threat comes. You might as well be, you might as well be naked in the high street. It's clearly a, a tragic story, a true life story. This is someone you know and worked with. And yeah. I don't know how close you were. I assume you were. Well, we, 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 we wouldn't probably be, some of us would not be friends in real life, but we're bound by a job and a cause sure. and a purpose. So that we call ourselves, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the brotherhood isn't in our world a myth or an exaggeration. So it's not an expression to be taken lightly. You, you, no. you support each other, come what may, when you're out on the job. Yeah. yeah. From a practical management point of view, pointing the finger at somebody presumably is to deflect it from their own operational failure, I'm guessing, and to say, well, look, we didn't do anything wrong. There was a, something went wrong on the job and therefore, you know, they're exonerating themselves from any failure. Well, I, th- I think that's probably true. The other thing that they would justify it by is the effect it has on the rest of us to say, this is what happens when you get on the wrong side. So we're almost at, he's almost been made an example of, because right. I'm the same rank. I'm imagining, God, if that happened to me, what would I do? This is what's likely to happen. So all of us that would be in that position, and it was a short straw. He happened to be the fellow that was right there. It could have been me. So what was the reaction by senior management after he'd taken his life? Nothing, absolutely nothing. But by now, because I've returned to work and feeling like I'm going to die on a daily basis, I've already stitch two and two together you've moved me it was unjustified I was bomb proof before this happened I've come back determined to be bomb proof not gone for compensation I'm not exaggerating my pain and my injury I've actually come back for more so to know that I'd got that spirit about me I'm thinking we've all pretty much got that spirit about us and there was a big legal thing and maybe this bloke's reputation and future promotion was going to be pretty much dashed on the fa- because if any of us had done it, this is the thing. We had something. Um, we had a, an item called um, a recall. If I went to a fire, and chimney fires were the ones that bothered me. Do you remember chimneys? I do. Chimney fires were the ones that bothered me because yeah. it all nooks and crannies and hidden. And if you put a fire out again, you send the stop message. You put a fire out, and you get called out again within 24 hours to the same fire. So it looks as if you didn't actually put it out you were going to be hung, drawn and quartered. It was really severe. And now we've got this enormous job where a principal officer makes the error and they try and turn it back on one of us. So we didn't actually feel particularly well supported. But in terms of what it meant to us as a cohesive unit down here at the bottom, the poor bloody infantry, if you like, we'd got a kind of a cohesion and a strength about us that was probably uh, enhanced by that kind of, uh, that kind of attitude to us. Mm. I believe... There was more than one unfortunate suicide on your during your time. Yeah, and the one that hit me the hardest, especially now that I'm, I've got some knowledge of all this work, was uh, was Lionel, and it, it wasn't his real name. <laughs> he was uh, his, his surname was Richie, so <laughs> just the that, okay. uh, it, yeah, that yeah. Was, so you'll get you'll get why yes. he got he got the nickname, and I'm pretty sure he hated it, which is why it would have stuck. So we had the um, 
Lionel was a, a young lad who I, I really got on well with. He was at a neighbouring station. And I remember being on duty when we got the... Uh, we, were cleaning, we were cleaning the truck at, at Northfield, washing it, all soap suds and stuff. Middle of the afternoon, clear blue sky, sunny day. And the radio on the truck, which is permanently left on, is just crackling and going going nuts. And we've got all the codes that say somebody's hurt. It's requested ambulances and lots of them. And so we knew somebody was going to be in trouble. And of course, we hoped it wasn't going to be fatal, uh, only to find that Ian had found himself opening the door to a flat that was loaded with flammable stuff, pallets and car tyres, I was told, for somebody that was determined that she wanted to live in a council house, not in a high-rise block. So she pretty much made herself homeless by setting light to this lot. And Ian found himself in the in the flashover, the fireball when he opened the opened the door. Ninety uh, percent third degree burns and died the following day. And ironically, it was right opposite the then world famous accident hospital in Birmingham and its burns unit. And he physically crossed the road from the block of flats. The fellows that were coming down in the lift with him burnt their hands trying to get this, try, the breathing apparatus set off his back. That's how hot the cylinder was. And uh, he crossed the road, pretty much admitted himself as he's trying to unpeel his, his uniform. And you can imagine the, the state he was in. And 24 hours later, he died. Uh, his father was actually a teacher at my school. And when I got the names, McPhee together and looked in the phone book and there was only one McPhee, I knew it was, uh, it was Jim's lad. And uh, so I, I spent a bit of time with the family, partly because of my own shock and the lack of support I was going to make sure I was no stranger to the, his parents grief not that I knew anything about what to do but what really got to me was about a week after Ian was killed I was running a training course at his station so we've driven three miles to the station I've run a breathing apparatus course and it's time for us to leave now the atmosphere on the station was pretty pretty heavy uh, again by coincidence it's the same station that's got the brass plaque with my uncle's name on it inside the front door and for a lot of people there's stuff coming back and it's not pleasant there was a degree of acrimony which really was unpleasant uh, whether that was people blaming each other for what happened I later found out there should have been some blame apportioned that wasn't but Ian was dead and they were preparing for his, his funeral and just as I was about to leave the station, Lionel came over and he pretty much got me by the lapels and said, I'd have got him out, John, I'd have got him out. Why was I on leave? What was I doing on leave? I'd have got him out. What am I doing? He was my mate. We were on training school. What was I doing? My reaction to that is to lean back, unpeel his fingers and tell him I've got to get back to the station. Sorry, Lionel, let's catch up for a drink sometime. Got back on the truck and the blokes that were already on there are having a bit of a giggle because he's done the same to them during the day. So we drove back. And it was when I actually went to visit my dad in the accident hospital some months later that I'd gone there after work. So Greenwatch will all finish at the same time. I went into the accident hospital to see my dad and there's some Ladywood blokes off duty that have obviously come from the station telling me he's, he's on the third floor and I can't understand why they've come to see my dad. They don't even know him. And I assured them he was on the ground floor because I was here yesterday. And then we realised that we were talking about different people. Different and they people. said, it was Lionel. They said, uh, you're not heard. He said he's poured white spirit on himself and set it alight. And six weeks later, he died. Oh. Same injuries. Now, for me, that chant is now the big red flag that I know what, what, how to spot 
that was the turmoil do. he was in. That was the turmoil. He was, how could he? He wasn't even on. He wasn't even there. He was miles away. Yeah. It was a, somehow he had in, a, engineered a perspective that put him, made him responsible, even though he wasn't there. Yeah, you'd assume some guilt somehow. By Absolutely, proxy, hadn't he? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. What was the age difference between Lionel and the? I forget the name. The, the, Ian. Ian. They were mates. They were mates. Yeah, the same yeah. sort of probationers together, as I remember, or certainly very close. Young firefighters on. Unpromoted, so you pretty much you're almost like a pack when you don't carry the responsibilities of rank. You just do the job with each other, and you ride what we call it in pairs with breathing apparatus. So you're pretty close. You've got to be pretty close, even if socially you're not. When the job, when the job happens, when the call comes, the shout is on. You're pretty much in each other's pockets and making sure that you're both safe. So would you say this incident with Lionel, albeit not his real name? was the first sort of precursor, if you like, to you to consider the aspects of uh, what we know to be or consider to be post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah, it was, it was the big... It's what took me past the tipping point to saying I can't ignore this anymore. When I overheard conversations with people who knew Lionel before he, he did it, I'm thinking, that sounds familiar. That's the kind of stuff I've been saying to myself. And then I remembered people saying it about Frenchie who had actually got his watch tying hangman's nooses. We used to do sessions on knots and lines because ropes have to be used throughout uh, often and we have to know how to tie the knot for what purpose. So we'd have, if it was raining, he didn't want to put the fire engines out in the rain and put ladders up and get soaking wet for a training drill. Bit of a soft option was to do knots and lines indoors where it was nice and dry. So what's the significance of a hangman's noose? He was planning how to kill himself. And this must have been an option. So that's the kind of precursor. The days that led up to it involve that sort of comment. That's the one that stuck in my mind. And I remember the fella telling me, he said, so we decided the best way to do it is to get a length of hose, go and park your car up somewhere remote and just stick it through the window. And that's what he did. What an environment to work in. I mean, it must be horrendous. Well, there's probably, oddly, we would probably feel this is the first time I've reflected on this, but a certain nobility to know that we're doing a job that could actually cost us a bit like, I think, the return I would have made after a back injury that I could have got compensated for and lived happily ever after. And I couldn't bring myself to do it. So there's almost a a decency about the people that would not take the weak option. You know, footballers didn't used to dive in the penalty area. It's all something. There's something behind that. Kicking first. That right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So there's something of that determination to stay on your feet. That's the metaphor, probably, for knowing you're doing an extraordinary job, and you don't want to be seen either in your own eyes or in the eyes of your mates or the proud friends and family that have admired you that it's actually chopped you down. So I don't know how we, how in terms of time frame um, from these incidents to your subsequent involvement in some very high profile incidents, namely support uh, post 9-11 and then the London uh, terror attacks of, was it 2017 or 16? I can't remember the Westminster. No, it was, tw- it was last year, 2017. 2017 and more recently, uh, very high profile, the uh, Grenfell Tower. Um, when you've been instrumental in supporting I don't know what I would call them victims. What do you call sufferers of potential? Well, for me, they were just, they were police officers. Police officers. But, but, but I say that because I've got that sense of pride that sits behind a yes. title that most of us publicly wouldn't have. It sounds like a very neutral term to say a police officer yeah. and to say firefighter. But you say it to me and I get what 
I know what's behind the screen. I know there's much more substance and courage and commitment. So just talk us through you, how you became involved in the okay. field you're now known for, which is assisting in post-traumatic stress disorder. Here's my timeline. After, after, Lionel's, after Lionel's death, um, the recognition that probably, and I started to spot it in other people, that was the thing, and I wondered how uh, common these concerns were. I got the sense that people were worried, but not expressing it. And I imagine that's how I would have looked to people who had they been alert. You're, you're talking people within the fire service? In the fire or, service. These are, co- these are fellow firefighters. The police. You're talking fire. No, just firefighters. Fire. Okay. People I'm working with and watching now how they react to fatalities and the nasty jobs we would get. And we had just before Christmas, it was the 23rd of December, 1993, we had our stand down for Christmas dinner. That means no duties, no responsibilities, cook yourself a turkey in the morning and have yourself all the festivities in the afternoon and invite a senior officer down and just pretend everything's wonderful. But that was the tribute to, to Christmas. On that day, I got called out to the largest fatality pileup on the M5 I'd ever been to. Uh, we were the last truck to turn up. And we parked in, the, the traffic was just bet. it was just standstill both sides. So it was a, took us an age to get there and we were the last ones to arrive. And I've got this memory of, if you've seen the V-shape in a row of all the soles of the shoes of the people who had been pulled from the wreckage and were dead and they're all covered in green tarpaulin sheets. So that was the first thing that struck me. The other, being a bright sunny day, was the shiny three, four-foot stripe down the fast lane of the, a lorry driver had had a heart attack, crossed the central reservation and ploughed into oncoming traffic. And there were fragments of bone oh. that were on this this stripe. And when you walked on it, I, when I walked on it, I slipped. And only later did I realise it was probably the grease from the bodies that had been crushed under this lorry, squeezed out of this car and just dragged... 50, 60 yards it's back just down the motorway. Yeah. And I decided this is my last one. I don't, I can't do this anymore. Not least because, pro- and this may well have been valid. I may well not have been performing particularly well a sub officer in charge of a crew and sometimes in charge of an incident for all the reasons that I've said. And that I think I got tipped off. I was being lined up for charges, insubordination, uh, failure to carry out orders. And what's curious about the old discipline code is if you compare the discipline code for bad behaviour with the consequences of having post-traumatic stress disorder, it only depends what your background is, which, one, which list becomes valid. So a lot of discipline problems, I then realised, and may well have emanated from people who were in, incapable of expressing the changes in themselves, appeared to be incompetent, but were actually acting in the safest way they could because of their dread of what's right, going to happen so they next. start to question things oh, that they're being asked to do. Yeah, yeah. For, for, fear, of, for fear of something going yeah. terribly wrong. Yeah, when I was being told to commit men to an incident, I'd want to know why. Didn't used to do that. It was right, how quick and how many, and we'd be in there, thoughtless. So, yes, you're absolutely right. So for a senior officer to be questioned, when he expects instant obedience, it can look like, and I was told it, was, it would certainly did look like, I was going to be held responsible on a, on a number of charges. I, I was so convinced I was going to die 
I thought at around 29, 30 years of age, I'm not going to reach retirement. And my plans when I reached 50 was to take my lump sum, uh, move to North Wales, uh, build my own house. It was just an ambition I had. When you said you were convinced you were going to die, was that on every shout you went on? Or no, ju- it was just it, there in the back of your mind the whole time? The whole so, time, the whole time. So whether every, you were in your civilian life or yeah, at work, just yeah. something was going to happen. Well, yeah, but in civilian life, I'd be knowing it's when I get back to work. I somehow knew that it was only going to happen So you're constantly work. fretting when yeah. you're off, off duty, constantly fretting when I get back. I'm, I'm not going to get through yeah. the next... Yeah, I, I, I remember uh, falling asleep. We had dormitories back then. I remember falling asleep. We could go to bed around midnight if there was no no incident. It was quiet. And I remember lying in bed, looking up into a, up at the ceiling, completely dark. And when I woke in the morning, I was amazed that it was daylight and what would have felt like an execution hadn't happened. And then I realised I got the tracks of tears, just two salt trails from the eye down to the ear on both sides. And I must have been shedding tears through the night. That's how it felt. And so when it was beginning to feel that certain, and I hadn't got this life ambition fulfilled, within months I'd sold up just about everything that I'd got and bought a plot of land in North Wales. And I moved out, lived in a caravan and a holiday chalet and just felt that there was some purpose to life. At least if I died, I was going to have left a mark on the planet and the dread of dying, which I thought was inevitable and soon, and not having left any mark would have felt like a futile life. And so without enough money to finish the job and without the know-how to finish the job, I nevertheless went out and did it. And in the middle of all that, I went and saw my GP because I was really beginning to wonder. I'm in a Welsh-speaking part of the country. I probably look like someone who's worth a fortune because he's building this big house it was ridiculously big and and the architect told me it was but I didn't care I just wanted to build it and um, so I built a four-bedroomed house overlooking the hills in the Dee Valley and it was a hundred miles from from Birmingham but I kept doing my shifts I stayed with my mum and dad in between um, my night shifts so I had four days at work and four days at home overseeing this building project. So you continued to work you, you despite your fears yeah, and anxieties. Yeah, I, 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 that's how determined I was. Yeah. And I thought, here's the thing, when, when you've met, as I had by then, counsellors, an occupational therapist, I don't know if I'd seen the psychiatrist by then, but when the experts are beginning to run out of options and you're not feeling any better, and I think this is the dreadful moment, you, you seem to think it's you. That's the natural conclusion. These are the experts. There's something wrong with me. They they're know what they're doing. Me. If they can't fix it, it's me. Exactly. Yeah. Now, that's something that doesn't get discussed in the debates around stigma. Psychologists and psychiatrists somehow blame us for using stigma as a reason to not go and see them. I'm convinced that we don't go and see them because most of us know they're useless or they're going to stick us on pills. And it isn't the content of the pill that's missing from our brains that's going to change the situation that we're trying to survive. So the, the, the logic and the philosophy behind it all is completely at odds with what I now do. So, I mean, you've got so many amazing, <laughs> unfortunate, tragic stories as well. I mean, we could probably be here for hours. Tell him I'm smiling. It's in all bad, is, all right? <laughs> he is smiling. <laughs> um, and you're doing some amazing work, which is what I want to come on to as well. Um, done some amazing research and your, your PhD and your thesis. So let's just touch on, actually, when did you finish your career within the, uh, the service and start to focus more on PTSD? I finished it right at that time uh-huh. because uh, I went to my GP 
who referred me eventually to a psychiatrist who said, you've got post-traumatic stress disorder. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Because you're not going back to the fire brigade. And uh, I remembered the, I wanted to be a doctor. I actually phoned up. I remember I was 31. I phoned up uh, the medical school at Birmingham University to see whether there was any prospects of me being considered as a mature student. And I got laughed at. Why? I, I, don't, I don't know. They just said, that's ridiculous. How old are you? And, and I'm, I've got this really embarrassed, because I've got ambition now. I'm thinking there might be something to, to get through. Uh-huh. And, and, and so the big turnaround was a friend of mine had his own ambitions for, uh, he was a police officer and he wanted to, uh, his wife wanted to be a teacher and he'd forbidden her from doing it. And she said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And I ended up parting because she wanted to be a teacher but she was about my age and she'd done it she knew about access courses you can get it if you want to so as it happened uh when i thought this doctor thing is ridiculous i wondered about being a psychologist and you might remember the days when the shortest phone the shortest distance was the cheapest phone call yeah so the the cheapest phone call was to bangor university i was now in north wales sitting on a concrete floor in a house i'd run out of money to finish and all it was was weatherproof i'd got one half inch copper pipe sticking out the corner of the of the kitchen and that was my water supply and i was had to fit the bathroom to make sure i had a a toilet and 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 some and some way of surviving in there and it was a pretty desperate day when I made the phone call and I wanted to know what I needed to do to uh, do a psychology degree. And in the course of the conversation, it must have turned somebody's lights on because they said, well, let's come and have a chat. Can you write a 2,000-word essay for me on anything? And I wrote the essay, posted it, accepted the invitation to go and discuss it, and I hadn't even sat on the chair. And the admissions tutor, Alan Wadden, said, I've got your essay. It's great. He said, why don't you come and join us in October? So I didn't, I started my degree with no qualifications. So that was your BSc in psychology yep. and health psychology yep. at uh, in where university was in Bangor. Yep, that's the one. So that was the start. And I started to realise as I was becoming educated about it, I'm wondering why it is that so much information is gathering dust on university library bookshelves and not sitting in a nice little book on every, in every fire station watch room in the country so part of me wanted to write that book i've since found that out there so we don't need it but the education brought so much relief to me that i thought i can keep going with this i'm going to find a way to stop it and i've got frenchie and lionel in my head and whoever that lad i used to be that thought it was all going to end so the one thing i didn't know was um, and became convinced of was statistics is a language you have to speak if you want to have any kind of impact in the professional world of mental health. So I did a master's degree. And that's what took you to Lancaster University. That's right. To do BSc on in psychology. Uh, no, I'm the wrong one. Psychological research methods. That's the which one, is yep. the statistical that analysis master's. that you're talking about. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And then I realised that with now what I'd got, I was probably, in my mind, a fully-fledged psychologist because I can do research as well as understand all the principles. And a friend of mine, uh, an American firefighter had seen the change in me soon after I was injured and he assured me that this kind of thing wouldn't happen in the states he said we got peer support teams in fire departments and we look after each other was thick as thieves as a guy called Jeff Mitchell uh, used to be a firefighter became a psychologist he's got all these debriefing techniques you should get over there and see what he does long story short I started to train in these peer support techniques once I'd been to a conference I saw the light I thought this is exactly what we needed and then came back determined. I was actually still in the job when I went to the, the first conference. And I tried to get the, um, 
Oh, I've, just, I've just thought of something. My memory of going to this conference was based on talking to the divisional commander who was seeing me as the discipline problem. And he'd pretty much at one occasion, he'd ordered me to change back to who I used to be, which, and this is pre-injury. The pre-injury, I was promotable, I was confident, and now I couldn't do it. And he'd, he'd tried to order me to change back as if I was acting, yeah. acting bad. And when Paul, the firefighter, the American firefighter, told me about the conference, I went to the divisional commander and I thought this might set the record straight. I tried to explain all these changes in me. I couldn't help. Uh, and if he's distressed about the change in me, imagine how distressed I am. I cited the suicides. I cited the injuries that had happened and told him that I think I might be able to bring something back from this conference for us all to benefit from. Would you be willing to consider some special leave and let me go so I don't use up my annual leave and maybe contribute to my airfare it's an expensive trip and he came from behind the desk I thought to congratulate me and shake me and I even put my hand out and he put his face four or five inches from mine and he growled I'm ordering you not to go and I couldn't believe I'd heard that and I said so why would you why would can you order me not to go and he said maybe not but if you do go your career in the fire service is over and I said, why would you say something like that? And then he pointed and he said, because information at that level is inappropriate to someone of your rank. Oh, for goodness sake. Yeah. And you can tell, I haven't forgotten it. Yeah, it's, no, it's, no, it's, it's, it's right there. Yeah. And I turned and I took my own leave and I spent my own money and I went and I saw the light. So that was when I came back. And actually after that, that crash on the M5, I got the first chance to run it with the crew that I was with because we were all knocked over by that. It's the only time in 17 years in the job I returned to the station from the incident and nobody spoke there was always something to say to comment some banter some black humor something but all and this is the thing that told me all I could hear was the sound of the engine underneath the cowling because the incident was the just incident, that horrific this is all hit, yeah 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 I haven't told you all the details no, 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 I've told I, yeah, you enough I don't think yes and that was when I did this diffusing it's a debriefing technique that you do immediately after but this was done without the authority of your superiors do you know what i was my i did have a superior there because a station officer outranked me there's two pump ladders on this station and only the pump has responded mine so they're waiting for us and you might remember that i told you that it was um it was christmas dinner day so when we were back in the truck in the other crew are waving raw steaks back <sighs> at us saying how do you like them how do you like them now this is standard black humour yes but they saw the looks on our faces and stopped doing it they soon and realized. disappeared yeah knowing that i felt that we had we got no appetite you can imagine so i asked the station officer it was a <laughs> we regarded him as a bit of a fascist do you mind it's knocking us off the run for 15 minutes i want to talk to the crew and he said no you've had it easy get up there and help us with the cookie and i did i ignored him i knocked us i told control myself 15 minutes we're not available and i was going to take the consequences if we missed a call and we did the thing that i'd discovered so, and the, so briefly what does that entail what it is what i said to them i said this is going to sound crazy i just hope you'll bear me out and listen to me but you remember i went to america last year it was to learn the stuff i'm just about to do now if you want to laugh and you want to snigger at it i don't mind just listen to me because this is for my benefit if you want to do the same after that's up to you just will you stay until i finish telling you what what's this what this is how this has affected me and they all agreed. Got two young lads. I think one was 21, one was 19. And Martin, who had got 25 years in the job. So I'd got the spectrum here. And uh, I told them. And then I'm waiting for this. Because in my mind, I've got this drum roll going now. What's this going to bleed to? And then 
Lee started talking about what it meant to him. And Eddie the same. Eddie talked about one of the people. So I, th- I think in my head, we might have skipped, skipped a step. You said you've told them. What, what exactly is the process? What were you telling okay. them? What you do is, ideally, it's undertaken with a team, not somebody that was there and that was affected. But I'm the only one that's trained. I'm the only one that knows this. So I try to play both roles. I'm trying to be my own supporter, my own listener, while I'm telling other people how this has affected me. And once I'd said all my stuff, and I, the thing I just told you about, the, the grease, the bone, the tooth I found, that was the stuff that... I got the sense that they were tuned in. I don't know how to describe that, but you just know sometimes when you're in communication, you've got there's a kind of a rhythm of synchronicity. So when I'd finished, all three of them had a different take on what they did and what they saw. Some one was reminded of his granny, another was reminded of another. Death so you're a, asking them to reflect on the things yeah. they've seen and the things they feel and have yeah. experienced in yeah. the incident just yeah. now well if i was to, here's my definition i train firefighters and police officers now to recognize and first of all define a traumatic incident and all a traumatic incident is to me is two it's the space between two time points we generally go meandering through life few ups few downs but it's pretty mundane and then suddenly there's an oh shit moment And in that moment, we realise everything could change and it starts to change and in a way that we can't control. Now we get our heart quickening, we start getting all the stress reactions, we don't know whether we're going to survive it. And at some point in the future, it might be a minute later, it might be a day later, we realise we've survived. But there's all this compressed, confusing information that we haven't been able to take in because it's been flooding into us and that's what we've got to deal with. Somewhere in the creases and the folds of all this rambling information, we've got the heart of something that we have to recover in order to get rid of all the the tension and the angst. So that definition of a traumatic incident is all I need to know. It doesn't fit with the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. That the Can anyone suffer a traumatic I mean, most people's minds, what you saw on that particular day, would yeah. be, you'd be considered probably irrational to think there was anything other than a traumatic incident. But Another person can have, I don't know, like a negative experience parking a car or a little prang on the way to work or something and consider that to be traumatic. Yeah. So is one person's trauma, you know, another person's, you know, get over it? Yeah. It's, uh, somebody pointed out to me, the worst pain anyone can endure is the one that you're feeling right now. Because it's personal to you. Because it's personal yeah. to you. And yeah. you. You can suffer the same, I don't know, fight or flight and physical, you know physiological emotions yeah. going on in your brain as somebody who's, who's seen what you've seen on the, yeah. the motorway that day. Yeah. Well, if, if I had a magic wand and another 50 years of life, I would tell you that I think this has been the entrance or the portal into a whole lot of um, psychology that's yet to be stitched together relating to child abuse. Because if what you talk about, the little prang on the way to work or somebody dropping litter in the street is looks and feels like a traumatic reaction what I now suspect it is, is the latest in a long line of traumatic incidents that started when we were toddlers at a time before we can remember. Yeah, because it's your perception of, it's a learnt behaviour almost, isn't it? Yeah. You're reacting to something because... Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great phrase because if we've learned it, we can discover what we learned and why we learned it. But if it's back so far in our history, we can't remember it. Our bodies don't forget. We still go into, imagine the three-year-old survival reaction is, is, is a violent one, whether it's um, his dad's beating him or beating his brother 
and he's got to react to get away and he goes into some kind of terrified uh, charge out of the house or whatever it is and he forgets it, what that toddler has done is learned a behaviour, which is just what you said. Now, if he forgets about it and when he's 33 years of age, he gets into a pub fight and witnesses the same thing. There's nothing stopping his body doing exactly what it did when it was three. But now it weighs 20 stone, he's half drunk, and he can handle himself. And it could have just got triggered on the back of something. And so the trigger is the important thing. And I'm afraid it's something that psychiatry has missed. They only look at the most recent known incident to pin a PTSD diagnosis on, post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis on, when, and this is the stuff that I've been doing with the Metropolitan Police and more recently with firefighters, has often been with the assumption that it isn't going to be the recent incident that was the worst one. It was the one when they were toddlers or even earlier. But something that precedes the horror that wasn't dealt with at the time is primed waiting to go off again when we get the trigger later on. It's difficult to understand what what trauma actually is because, as, as I said, you may never have experienced anything terrible in your life before, even working in the fire service, as, as horrific as what you experienced on that particular day on the motorway. But I don't think anyone would argue with you that that was, could be defined as a traumatic experience. Whereas, I don't know, I don't think I've possibly ever experienced anything traumatic, but yet I could be more resilient than somebody else who, I don't know, suffered something as a child. It's, it's difficult to know. Is it a label we're putting on things? Well, that, that's... Um I'm trying not to jump in yeah. because the two the two ways to look at it, and you've identified one of them, is it's the subjective, the personal, the unique, the novel reaction I have to an experience that I have. And we'd all be different in that regard. And I think as human beings, we all know what that means. We used to say things like a mental breakdown or it's getting him down and use general terms about not being in a particularly good place as almost confident that it's going to pass. But what has happened officially and professionally is that a group of American psychiatrists in 1980 voted post-traumatic stress disorder into existence and they used the Vietnam War and the psychological conflicts and difficulties that their veterans were having to frame the physical and medical symptoms that they were describing, put them into a kind of a structure and call it a mental disorder. And give everyone a label. And give and, and now what they've got is a label t- which can be attributed according to the psychiatrist's opinion, given that a committee of them decided this did exist. So, so long as the pattern of behaviour post the traumatic incident yeah. fulfills certain key criteria, they can say, yeah. you've got post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. therefore take these tablets. Or Yeah. You can think of, I'm sure you'll think of a dozen events that would have you do this. Uh, so intrusion, avoidance and arousal, they're the three cornerstones of post-traumatic stress disorder. You could have had a row with someone and you have constantly these thoughts coming back to you about the things you said and the things that they said. That's intrusion. Avoidance, right, I'm going to stop talking to her. I don't ever want to see her again. The phone goes, I get a reminder of her, I get a whiff of perfume, I don't want to get anywhere near her. I'm avoiding. And every time I think about her or somebody brings her up in conversation, I get tense. That's arousal. It's also, it's also normal. It's what human yes. beings do. Yes. So not necessarily means you're suffering from a trauma. No. Now, if you take post-traumatic stress disorder as this fairly grandiose title for what we've just discussed, the middle part of it is trauma. So now we've started to use the psychiatrist's lexicon as a way to describe the stuff that we used to use 
plain English to describe. But the benefit to pharmaceuticals companies is they've now got a disorder that can be medicated. And one of my psychiatric colleagues assures me that very often the medication precedes the disorder. They already know what the effect is going to be. So they persuade the American Psychological Association every time it sits to rewrite the manual what it is that they can now treat. So how helpful is it to the the person, I keep coming back to the word, what, what do you already, victim, the, the, the person who's allegedly suffering from PTSD? Yeah, call, them, call them the sufferer. Sufferer. Yeah. How helpful is it to the sufferer to, to give them that label? Well, there's probably more than one answer, unfortunately. But if you take a legal perspective, I can sue you for the damage that you've done to my mental health because I'm a firefighter, you're the chief officer, you write the policies, you expose me to this threat and you haven't done anything to fix me. Look, I've got it all. That's the equivalent of breaking my leg and re-breaking my leg and refusing to let me go to hospital. So it's got legal implications. If there's something in medicine known as secondary gain, which is I'm doing all right out of having this disorder, people treat me differently, okay. I get sympathy yeah. for it. Uh-huh. So there's the one I had, which was a complete affront to everything I thought men stood for as protectors, as the, the role models for, for boys, whatever it was about my background, and probably brought up on black and white American cowboy films, you know what the hero mm-hmm. looked and acted and sounded yep. like. So I pretty much got that old-fashioned view of the way back to the footballers, the footballers that wouldn't take a dive, they'd rather have their leg broken than fall over. So there's, there was something of a stoic aspect to this that I was determined to, to foster. But when psychiatrists gave us the option, and it is me, I've got to have to confess, I don't particularly believe, believe in this as a reality. We talk about it as if it is, but it's a bit like talking about communism. We know it's there, but it's a bit, it's a bit abstract. Now, I've had the diagnosis. It got me out of the fire brigade. It allowed me to do all the things that I've done. So in some ways, I feel like I benefited from having that label because a whole group of professionals took me seriously in a way they wouldn't have done if I just stuck it out. And this is the issue I see for fire and poli- firefighters and police officers is my determination to be back amongst the tribe, even though I was probably injured, psychologically injured to the point that when I did say, put my hand up, they let me go, they released me. Now there's two problems. If I know that I'm best amongst my own, being supported, the last thing I want to do is lose that. I'm isolated. I'm the, 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 the swan that's been pushed out of the brood and I'm going to die on my own and all those senses of dread and I'm no longer part of the team. The respect has gone. Being a student was great, but being an ex-firefighter wasn't. You've always got to explain what ex meant when it basically says you're not as good as you used to be, are you? So those are the, those are the kind of things that, that were going on in my me, in me head back then. The way PTSD was dealt with previously, and I guess still is now to a large extent, is what you would call, I think, the top-down approach, yeah, which is the psychiatrists. A group of experts. A group of experts determine this, this is what PTSD is, these yeah. are the various symptoms, this is what you're exhibiting. Yeah. You, you fulfill the criteria, therefore you've got PTSD. Yeah. And the only way to treat it is cocktail of drugs, I would guess. If there is a group called the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence or NICE, and mostly they're in the news because they're the they're watching the purse strings for the NHS, they're saying what drugs can be afforded, what can't. What they actually do in psychiatry is determine what recommended treatments there are for PTSD. We've sort of jumped a lump of history, but okay, I, I, we'll, we'll probably get back to it. But I ended up doing a PhD 
got that and that made me eligible to apply to be on the NICE committee for the management and treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. But I'd learned a whole lot of other stuff because I did get involved in the 9-11 attacks. After that conference and all the other, and the masters, I was determined to learn it and bring it back to the fire service in the UK and start teaching and training firefighters to do the thing that I did that in that 15 minute block, but as a, as a form of policy about how we deal with incidents formally thereafter. And when I, we'd had the Madrid attacks had happened and we we're anticipating attacks in London. When I came back from the States with all this knowledge, because I'd worked with the police officers who did everything in a peer support model, in a peer support fashion. So police officers in New York had solved their own suicide problem after 26 police officers individually shot themselves, issue pistol through the mouth in their offices. And the $2 million, this is... Uh, what Bill told me, and I'll tell you who Bill is in a moment. When $2 million was put up by the city of New York to try and solve this problem, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, psychotherapists, all sorts of people made a pitch for this because they thought they could solve this problem. The two people that were awarded the $2 million were Bill and Eugene, two New York police officers who said, if you want to know what the stress of being a New York cop is, you've got to be a New York cop. Give us the money and we'll train our own to look after each other. So they formed themselves into a group called Popper, police organisation providing peer assistance. So when their critical incidents happened, they didn't automatically go to see the psychiatrist or they didn't get ignored. They went and saw Popper. So there were 110 police officers in the police department that were available and they didn't advertise. They wanted no business cards or calling cards or posters on the precinct walls. They just wanted it to go by word of mouth. And because they, they didn't it. want it to be a label thing. No. So as and when there's a need, you'll, fi- you'll find us. We'll be there waiting yeah. for you to support yeah. you. So my training coincided. My, the end of my training occurred 10 weeks after the 9-11 attacks. There's a shortage of, poli- of psychologists trained in this stuff. And it's the same techniques as the police department had used in the mid-1990s. So I was invited to join them. And so you went over to New York? Yeah, well, I've got friends in New York. Yeah. So every time I went for a training course in Baltimore, I'd go and stay with my friends. So every time I went, I spent a week in New York. And eventually I tracked down the both the fire and police departments. Let's call them support people. And Popper were just fabulous. And I watched what Bill had described to me all them years before. And I got involved in the critical incident stress debriefings. And I watched room falls, 20 police officers at a time, we would talk about and what a lot of people forget about that is that there was the dread of future attacks like that 10 weeks later the dust is still hanging in the air and these police officers they came in 20 at a time and they were angry they were disempowered they were weak they swore they cried they were upset they were embarrassed no protect and serve in this environment and by the time two to three hours had elapsed and they'd all gone through there's a seven phase way of asking key questions of everyone in the room not just so that they can express it but so that they can hear each other express it that's when they start to piece together and fill in the gaps that will have happened after that oh shit moment and when after a couple of hours it's done you just get the sense the atmosphere is lifted to stay a minute longer would be to spoil it so, so is it is it a one and done or is it is yeah. there repeat no, there's, there's, there's follow-ups because often what you'll do is you'll notice the one that hasn't has said pass, doesn't want to speak. 
you'll notice the one that gets upset more than the others. You'll notice the one that looks away or keeps laughing at stuff. And we all know each other's avoidance strategies, but it becomes obvious in a room where you can't leave. Well, obviously you can, but if you leave, you've now flagged yourself up as somebody who's actually struggling to express themselves. So that was where I got the sense that this is, this is the level of support that you need amongst people that understand you. So these are the techniques. And yep. This is the support mechanism that's required within our emergency services back home. And that's what you've been striving for. Well, it is. Ever since. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just that I've been striving for it and they said, no, we don't want it. NICE disapprove of it. NICE have got a category in the treatment of PTSD, uh, treatment and management of PTSD. They've got a category that says do not do. And under do not do, they say psychological debriefing. And the specific form that I'm telling you about is called critical incident stress debriefing. So they just lump it all together because they claim to have undertaken studies and they're right here because I'm going to critique them soon of debriefing and they decided it was potentially harmful. So they stopped my... So when I got back from New York determined to train people, I had trained two fire brigades and an ambulance service in critical incident stress debriefing. Then when I offered to do the follow-up training, they said, sorry, John, the lawyers have said, no, we can't do it. NICE has said, this stuff's dangerous, you've got to stop doing it. And my business ended. And I, I even went back to my old fire brigade where all this started and trained 40 of their people. I had the biggest team in the, uh, in the country ready to respond. So when the July the 7th attacks happened, and obviously the London Fire Brigade were, were involved, and a lot of them, whether it was um, collecting body parts, whether it was just assisting the police, whether it was they did some pretty grim stuff at, uh, in, the, in, in those attacks, um, I offered to bring all these people to reproduce what I'd seen happen in New York and help to run in New York, and the answer was no, it didn't happen. That was when I decided they're not listening to me. What have I got to do? And decided I was underqualified, despite having a master's and all this experience. Mm -hmm. That's why I did my PhD. That's the PhD at the University of... You've been around, haven't you? All these I have. University of Nottingham. Psychological growth following adversity, the role of social support. That's right. Yep. So that's the thesis you produce. It is. Yeah. Emphasis on the growth. On the growth. Because I no, no longer believe that a traumatic experience is a psychological injury. It's the springboard to a bigger, better, wiser, stronger self. And my supervisor, Professor Stephen Joseph, published his book just around that time. What doesn't kill us? Makes us stronger. That's the implication. That's the implication. So are you saying that anybody who suffers um, a traumatic incident, and whatever the definition is, but we can take it that 9-11, the motorway yep. incident, you yep. know, the bombings, you know, are traumatic by anybody's definition. Are you saying that anybody, if they're treated the right the correct way in the way you believe they should be treated bottom up with peer support yeah will avoid the symptoms of yeah. post-traumatic stress from maybe one support session yeah that's what i've been doing you can suffer the most horrendous incidents post uh, traumatic incidents and what you're saying is peer support and a one-off session yeah. can in effect inverted commas cure you from suffering from ptsd as opposed to the nice approach the top-down approach psychiatric treatment you know medicine pills and what have you you believe yeah. your your yeah. method yeah and the, is the method that they use in the states or new york anyway well there's there's two methods i now use i've discovered them both i'm not taking credit for inventing any sure. of this or demanding that you know you pay me thousands to tell you anymore but the critical incident stress debriefing is what i saw as perfectly suited and partly because it was developed amongst firefighters and ambulance crews that 
you can effectively prop each other back up and get yourselves back on the horse effectively. So in a sense, that's, that's prevention for me. That's getting you back to your former self. That's recovery. In a medical way, I think, in recovery is all you need. Nobody ever thinks you can go beyond recovery. But the other techniques, traumatic incident reduction, is what I learned from somebody who wasn't even a psychologist, somebody who was a member of what seemed like disparate small communities of people in the States that just do this a little bit. It resembles the witch doctors that I imagine, you know, live in tribes up and all over Africa. The, or the wise man, the sage, the one that you go to. So they've been doing this. And when I did the training in it, I couldn't believe how simple this was. I've already hinted mm, at it, mm. that if you can assume that the recent trauma, the one that's known, that the psychiatrist would call the traumatic incident, is not the actual root incident where you had the worst reaction, it's only a reminder, and you've replayed the reaction that had you survived right at the very beginning, however early in life it happened, then you can actually track it back. And Freud, for all his sins actually describes that i can dig the sentence out mm, for you mm. that says when he was doing the stuff that unearthed what he regarded as the subconscious and discovered the subconscious it was in treating people who were recently traumatized for what had traumatized them and then finding that there was something earlier that resembled it so what you're saying is that as horrendous as the traumatic incident is be it 9-11 or the yeah. london bombings or whatever as horrendous as they are and traumatic as they are that's not the trigger. There's something way back yonder when you maybe when you were a child, yeah. which you're not even aware of necessarily, which is more traumatic. Is more traumatic yeah. than yeah. traumatic at that stage in your life, well, I'm guessing. Well, yeah. Let's take the point. Let's make the assumption that as a toddler I'm actually more animal than human. So my body is the thing that stays that keeps me alive. So mm -hmm. we've got all these instincts. We get cold, we shiver, we get hungry, we cry, we do the things that animals pretty much do well animals have learned to survive and the, the, the overall thesis of post-traumatic growth was described by an evolutionary psychologist asking the question well if we actually got here and we exist we have inherited the very best survival strategies of the most successful ancestors all the way back through humanity mm -hmm, sure at a time where they had earthquakes tsunamis pestilence there were no fences around keeping the, the wild animals there mm -hmm. predators there yeah. were no hospitals there were no emergency services uh -huh. no soldiers to fight our fights and we have inherited the very best of what would be in a far more hostile environment so if the child that's born and becomes the toddler has got a stock of the very best things that kept them alive all we do as we grow older is develop this cognitive stuff that we call a mind and a memory and it starts for us, we think our life started the first time we remembered it. Well, our bodies have a different history. And so I'm now convinced that all the potential that that toddler was born with could be massive. We've probably been a bit utopian here, but life gets in the way. We have to learn to behave. We have to follow rules. We get punished for it, some more than others. And all those punishments that are often for our own good, and there are lots of writers on childhood trauma that will tell you we got a lot of beatings because it was going to toughen us up and put airs on our chest and all the other reasons have actually held us back have actually demeaned us to us to an extent that um if we persist with them and there's a there's a very uh, there's a famous book and i i don't like the book but i love the i love the title the body keeps the score so if you take it that your body that refuses to acknowledge the punishment the abuse the wrongdoing that happened to you as the unhappy or traumatized or abused child is actually sitting there latent and you ignore it 
and it's determined to survive, why would it not produce a rash to make you take notice? Why would it not invade your thoughts when you're dreaming and turn them into nightmares so that you take notice? And why would it not get you into trouble and make you aggressive because it wants you to take notice? And we've got a professions that will just pour pills down people's throats to calm them down and manage it. Yeah. It's a fascinating topic of uh, research. (laughs) That's why I need the magic wand and 50 years more of life. (laughs) But where you have implemented and where they've done it in the States and where you've had the opportunity to do it here, what what have the results been? Remarkable. It was as a result of a meeting some councillors from uh, the Metropolitan Police Service who saw a presentation by somebody I'd actually trained in this who thought it was a bit too good to be true and quite remarkable. So in 2015, late 2015, I was invited to meet occupational health managers at the Metropolitan Police Service who conceded that they've probably been tricked and conned out of spending far too much money on psychologists and psychiatrists because it actually hasn't made any difference to the sickness absence rates, the uh, premature medical retirement. PTSD is rampant. We know it. We know about suicides. We've got all these problems and we've heard that you did something in New York, was it? And of course, I tell them the story much like I told you. And I offered, because I got the the sense this might sound a bit incredible, that if they ask me, I'll be willing to to meet any police officer that is sick with for any psychological or emotional reason and only pay me if I make a difference. So that's what they did. And one by one, all the people that I saw, I saw within a couple of days, hence coming to London and being in London and being able to get there so quick. You're going to have to ask me about that later, how I got here, because that's another story. So one by one, I started to build a bit of a, a reputation. I was, And this, I think, probably irritated the councillors who were full-time employees because they got full appointment books. They do things in an hour and have you come back every week for 6, 10, 12 weeks, however long. But because the principle of the um, techniques that I use is to... It's actually firefighting. We're going to cross the threshold. We're going to get in here. And I don't care how hot, how unpleasant and how dangerous it gets. We're going to stay here until we find the fire. When we find it, we're going to squirt water on it. When we squirt water on it, it's going to turn to steam. When it turns to steam, we're going to get scalded. When we get scalded, we're going to want to run. But we've got to stay here until we get this fire out. Then the temperature will drop. Then the job will be done and it won't reignite. So what we do with these techniques is do them for as long as it takes Typically, they would take how long? Two to three hours Two to for three a single hours. incident. And when you say you've got to get into the heat and suffer the fire and the steam and all the rest of it, is that the pre-traumatic incident you're talking about? Is that that's, the me- re- that's the metaphor for what I would say to somebody. Let's say you, you, you were injured in a road accident yeah. and you can't cross the road, you can't drive a car. Hmm. That's the preamble. I'd say, listen, we're going to treat this like a fire. We're going to start this, and as soon as we start... You can turn your phone off. You can ignore. But what the are clock. we looking at? Are we looking at the road incident? We're we looking going out to my childhood to. It is this some sort of regressive it, it, it therapy actually technique? Doesn't, it actually doesn't matter because what the oversight of the original trauma is, and of course we get over it apparently. But if there's a seed of that left that's going to come out later, it will create something. It will create a curiosity for why. Why is it that I get nervous when I see people that have that particular? jacket what is it about that the smell of whiskey what is it about that tone of voice so we're usually curious and we won't make it expressive but we're curious about why that happens now the curiosity is generated by something that we started but didn't finish because when that oh shit moment happens 
we don't get to finish what we did, we were, we were setting out to do, we've actually got something unfinished right back there that has been blocked by this compression overwhelm of information that occurred when we were But do you not think a horrific incident like the Grenfell Tower fire, you know, the, the firefighters who, who go in there and see some of the things they've seen, which, we, you know, most people won't even, can't even think about as, as a reality in their normal life. Do you not think that is traumatic in itself? You, you still maintain that there's something prior to that in one's life that is coming to the fore, which is causing you to suffer the symptoms? Right. There's two possibilities. It's the thing that's just happened or it's that string of things that's happened. So you can get traumatized right now and you've used an example. But this, the, I'm, I'm hesitating because mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've been to the, the, uh, the Grenfell Inquiry. I've spoken to journalists about this and struggled to persuade them. I think the most unhappy firefighters will be the ones that didn't go. Because? They missed the big one. To the firefighter that survives, like me falling out the roof and hurting me back, the stripes, the credibility amongst your own. You've actually been there, done it. I bet if there's somebody on Red Watch that was lying on a beach in the Caribbean, watching think- his phone and seeing Grenfell Towers happened. You think they think they've missed out on something? Yeah. A status, an elevation yeah, of status. Yeah. Oh, I was on the Grenfell Tower. and Well, it, it, it could be that people, I'm making it sound like people want to dine out on it. No, they're humble, courageous people who did the job they were paid for. Didn't know what the demands were going to be. Did not know it was going to feel like that. Did not know that every time they climbed the stairs, they knew there were going to be people above them that were going to be dying as they strove to do it. But the fact that they did it, the fact that they did everything they possibly could is going to be the biggest consolation, and that incident alone will not traumatise them. What I think will traumatise them is how badly handled it gets after that. Because if you start to pour sympathy on somebody who's actually proud of what they did, and you start to treat them, and it was, a, it was the first concern I had after I heard the fire commissioner the following day say she had been overwhelmed by this. She hadn't seen such a bad fire in however many years of firefighting and that counsellors were going to be available to her firefighters. I nearly, I, I turned, my stomach turned. That is not what you want to hear. Now, I don't, neither do I want to hear what we used to get in our day, which was this big mythical cry about the brotherhood and that's what we do. But at least it had a degree of strength and dignity about it that didn't make us feel that the public was now looking on us as somehow weakened by the job that we would all agree we signed up to do. We don't look for sympathy. It's other people that give us the sympathy for what we do. It's attributed to us, and we're usually modest enough to accept it. We'll just let them say that about us. But this hero, you try calling one of them a hero. Get into, I tell you what, go into a fire station that's full of heroes and tell them they're heroes. Then you get laughed at. Do it in public with a thousand people watching. They might take it, but that's to save you the indignity of being laughed at. That's, that's what I'm saying. So the people that were there, I, I believe, would not have changed it for anything. Now, I believe also that there are people suffering. I'm pretty sure. I've been watching, the, watching them give evidence at the, uh, at the inquiry. And I've now devised a system for noting the predictors of post-traumatic stress disorder just from a conversation. So I, I think I'm onto something with this. So I've been appraising them and I've been telling the Fire Brigade Union officials and any lawyer that will listen and London Fire Brigade councillors, that these people are suffering, and they've been suffering for over a year. Compare it to the police officers after Westminster, and the biggest, proudest moment for me was being asked by the Metropolitan Police 
the day after Keith Palmer was killed, I was asked, what are you doing for the next three weeks, John? I said, anything you want. And I saw 13 police officers and staff, all of whom have returned to duty. No time off. I brought the firefighters I trained in. You mentioned the PhD. I did it with, um, I got me data from Nottinghamshire Fire and Rescue. So my contribution to pay and back was to train one of their firefighters in these methods. And then he was so impressed, I trained a team of peers so that the entire fire brigade had a peer support team like the police officers had with Popper all them years ago. So Nottinghamshire Fire and Rescue have got a team of, train, of people that I've trained that were available to come down to London after the London Bridgeborough Market attacks and the Grenfell Tower fire. And they've since received commendations from Ellie O'Connor, the now retired borough commander of Kensington, at Kensington Police Station, because we saw, I think it was 36 police officers that watched overnight while the Grenfell Tower fire unfolded. They were protecting firefighters with riot shields. They were handling bodies. They were holding people back and almost in a riot situation on occasions because people wanted to get back in. Ellie assures me, I know I'm, Ellie tells me there's been no case of PTSD. By the way, according to the psychiatrist, you get 20 to 30%, which is combat level PTSD after terrorist attacks. So of the 60 to 70 officers, soft 70, I think, London Bridge, Borough Market and Grenfell Tower combined, there's no case of PTSD being recorded. Ellie assures me at her, amongst her people, nobody even went sick. And as a result of her impressions, she's presented commendations to them this is firefighters dealing with police officers in a different part of the country so whatever it is that holds this holds us together was was evident there and again i'm one bloke on a bit of a mission but there's an entire discipline called psychiatry and another one called clinical psychology that are the experts and the authority in this apparently you can only manage it you can only treat it and if you follow the decision tree in the NICE guidelines about how trauma's managed, you'll see all the arrows end up at drugs slash medication. And none of the ones you've been supporting have had any medication or have had to require any ongoing medication? Not to my knowledge. That's your knowledge. That's, Not to that's my remarkable, knowledge. given those horrific incidents. I'm, um, I'm mindful, <laughs> mindful of the time. And um, I mean, it, it warrants many, many hours. We might have to get you back on the podcast for, for ongoing conversation. But when I was preparing for our chat today, one of the other things you speak about is, is not just, if you like, dealing with the symptoms of PTSD and the, the way you manage it, but also that growth that comes from it as well. Yeah. It's a new way of experiencing your life and, and things around you. Just, just talk to right. us about that briefly. Okay. There are three hallmarks of post-traumatic growth. There's a sense of a stronger self. In other words, you faced a situation you wouldn't have chosen to face you've got into a fight you wouldn't wished for, and you've survived. So most of us come to the conclusion that I didn't know I could have done that, but look, I just did. So there's a sense of a stronger self. The th second one is enhanced relationships. So the important people in life come to the fore and take a priority, and the trivial activities and relationships tend to drop away. So we invest in the, in the important people. The third one is a sense of spiritual or existential awakening. So we ask the big questions in life. Why am I here? What's, what's my it purpose all about? in life? Why me? Why not? Why you? Why not me? Why not you? All those big questions that we've shied away from or probably never even entertained become crucial. But this is what's key. It isn't despite the trauma. 
it's because of the trauma. So we don't just kind of bat it away as if it didn't happen. We know something fundamental in us got changed and it got changed. There's a, there's a, a theory of shattered assumptions. So if you imagine that life is pretty much rule bound and we know generally how we're going to get across London later today, we don't anticipate any of that going wrong. But if for some reason we don't make it through something quite unforeseen and violent we c- and we don't get propped up, we don't feel well after it, a lot of our assumptions about safety and predictability and who you can count on, you might remember right back at the start, betrayal was the thing that, that struck me, is it all gets undermined. The carpet, the rug gets pulled and something collapses. So coming through this process, not only do you recover quicker, from the traumatic event, but also you, you can grow and experience a more fulfilling life, I guess. Absolutely. One with, one with well, meaning. Yeah, and that, from the research that I'm doing, it's, a bit, it's bottom-up research because I'm not attached to a university. They don't believe in this stuff. I haven't found anyone that would even take me on an honorary post. I'm still trying, by the way, because I want the, the government are spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds on mental health and I don't see it making a scrap but of difference. But if they see the real life benefits from the examples you've you've given and worked on in London um, specifically and in America, you know, from from the research that's been done over there, why are they still so reluctant? Is it because of the the pressure from you know I the, t- the I, pharma I t- companies and well, it, it might be. And I've had lots of cynics explain to me the way the world works and the way the system works and the way big business works. What I will tell you is that I got onto the Nice Committee in 2013 to tell them that there was an evidence, because they argue we only use evidence-based approaches to recommend to the NHS. The two techniques that I use, critical incident stress debriefing and traumatic incident reduction, are both evidence-based. In other words, they have randomised control trials, so-called gold standard behind them, and NICE had ignored them. So I'm now on the committee with the papers saying, handing them round, allowing them to read it. They took a vote on it and decided in 2013 this was going to be advanced, and I'm thinking, job done. Four years of poverty and time at university and a lot of losses, this seems like a big turning point. They didn't publish it. They didn't change the guidelines. So I complained. I was persuaded not to put it in writing, take a phone call. Took a phone call and they said, that was the evidence update group. Get on the triage panel. That's much more powerful. So I kept my powder dry. Went to, and there was no record on the 2013 minutes of my contribution. So 2015 comes and I made a big song and dance about it. I took my popper ID badge to prove that I was in New York doing this stuff that they put under do not do. It's time, if not to approve it, at least to stop warning people against using it. And they more or less agreed. And there was a tiny comment in the minutes, but nothing changed. So I did the same thing. I started to complain, was persuaded to take a phone call instead, and then told get on the development group 2016 they're going to re- they're going to publish the guidelines for the next 10 years if you want to make an impact that's the one to be on so i applied and i was rejected so you've been given the runaround by the sounds of it okay i think we've been going a while now <laughs> and it's a fascinating topic i mean as i say we can go on for hours and hours and uh, i'm sure you've got lots of things up your sleeve how you're intending to progress this but i think we'll pick that up on another occasion all right but i just want to thank you ever so much for your time you're doing some sterling work, some fantastic work. It's, it's, it's fascinating from a psychological point of view, from a medical point of view, you know, from a societal point of view. It's just great work that you're doing. And I, you know, from my point of view, I just wish you more power to your elbow. And I hope more people sit up and listen because, you know, things, people need to sit up and listen so that things can change. And banging away from the outside is, is hard work sometimes. But 
do you have anyone else who's doing similar? You, you supporting you, or you just you're a lone voice? Uh, the people that are supporting me, back to your bottom up mentality. Uh, as recently as um, this morning, I had a phone call from a firefighter in Greater Manchester Fire and Rescue Service, and I've, so I've trained. And what I'm trying to do is train the right people. All bottom up stuff, I know, because senior officers and senior managers might be able to attract funding. But they're very often guided by the nice guideline people. They do the legal safe, take the legally safe option. And unfortunately, they, they're making jobs for themselves. That's the way I see nice creating opportunities. Let's just put it that way for their own colleagues. So they become the experts in all this stuff. But it's all management and treat. It's management and treat, diagnose and treat. It's all about the, the ethereal intellectual stuff. I'm training fire. It was firefighters that came down to Grenfell Tower and worked with the police officers and had these remarkable outcomes. In fact, I brought the team down. I didn't actually do anything but sit in the corridor to supervise or put back a session that had gone bad, that had gone wrong, and nothing did. So it was firefighters with no psychological qualifications. They probably can't even spell the word psychology. And they did all this work preventing post-traumatic stress disorder. And if out of those 80 police officers, you're supposed to get 20 to 30% PTSD rates, and we haven't got one. What's that tell you? Tells me it seems like it works. Thank you. On which note, thank you very much indeed, John, for your time. Much appreciated. And wish you the best of luck with your uh, efforts going forward. And uh, let's keep in touch and see how things progress. Thanks, Steve. I'd love to tell you all about it. Good luck.